Good morning, Covenant family. Great to see you this morning. So welcome to a brand new series entitled The Story. The Story. This is going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge because we are going to do a flyby of the entire Bible, from the first verse of Genesis to the last verse of the book of Revelation, and we're going to do it in six months. So pray for your pastor. Buckle up. Be here for every Sunday, because otherwise you're going to miss some big stuff. And get ready to go, right? I mean, this is going to be really a, a, quite a series. Now, we're doing this for a couple of reasons. One is, oftentimes, when, when Christians read their Bibles, they're not exactly sure what they're reading. They're not exactly sure. It's presented in a way that sometimes we think it's more difficult than it really is to understand. And then those of us who stand up here and proclaim it, uh, we kind of at least look sound like we know what we're doing. And we have these seminary degrees. And you think to yourself, well, I don't really have that. Can I really understand God's Word? You absolutely can. And one of the tools that we're going to give you to do that is how to understand the Bible as narrative. The fact that whatever you're reading, if you're reading a prophecy, if you're reading a narrative story in the Bible, if you're reading teaching from one of the epistles, it all connects in some way to one singular large grand story that the Bible is telling all of us. So that's the first reason we want to do this series, is we want to give you, from Genesis to Revelation, a handle on where each of those places in the Bible connects to that larger story. The second reason we want to do it is this. We want to do this because our faith is a story. And that's what sets Christianity apart from a lot of the other, really from all of the other world religions. If we, if we could do a world religion study here over the next several weeks, what you would come to find out is that every single major world religion on the planet, whether it's Islam, whether it's Judaism, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or one of the multitude of tribal religions in, in Africa or throughout the Middle East, they all have a story. They have a founder. They have a way in which they began. They have a set of circumstances into which they came into being. And that story informs something of that faith, but it doesn't define the faith. No other world religion on the planet has their faith defined by story. Every religion has a story, but Christianity is a story. And that's why we're beginning this series, not necessarily by looking at Scripture, but by talking about it. So the next six months, you're going to get a lot of immersion in the text of Scripture. This morning, I'm not so much going to talk from the Scriptures as I'm going to talk about them for this reason. If our faith is a story, then unlike really any other religion on the planet, the truthfulness of our faith depends upon the truthfulness of the story and its reliability. And so that brings us to the Bible. See, some of you may be skeptical of that. You may have walked in here this morning. We've got folks that uh, come in here all the time, and they're skeptical. And they're honest about their, their feelings and, and, and some of the drawbacks that they have regarding Scripture and whether or not it's true and whether Christianity is true and whether Jesus' absolute claims of himself are true. We welcome you here. You've got company. There are plenty of other folks around this building and both services who feel that way. We're not afraid of those questions. We don't think God's afraid of those questions. And so you may wonder, well, why in the world would you go, why would you take six months to dive into this book if it's not true? That's a valid question. And so that's why we have to deal with that question this morning. The truthfulness and the reliability of Scripture. Because if the story is not true, hear me well, guys, if the story is not true, neither is your faith. That's how serious it is when it comes to when it comes to Christianity. Christian, the Christian faith has painted itself into a corner like no other religion on the planet. And it does so for this reason. I think we'll see this at the end of this message, because Jesus can get us out of the corner. He really can. 
But it all comes down to this idea of the truthfulness of Scripture. Now, again, if you're, if you're a skeptic and you're wondering why this book, is it fact, is it fiction, you need to know a couple of things. You need to know, first of all, that the guy speaking to you this morning has walked that journey. Now, my journey may be a little different than yours, but it involves a lot of those critical questions. See, I grew up uh, in upstate South Carolina. We just came back from there. My wife and I have extended family there. We were blessed to spend the Christmas and New Year's holidays with them. It was a great time. We love our family. I love my culture of origin in spite of some of the things I'm about to say about it. Okay? I really do. I, I love, I, I love being a redneck. I mean, it's just, that's, and that's who it is. That's, that's who I grew up with and, and, and love that, that culture of origin. And it was an extremely conservative, I'm talking about politically conservative, socially conservative, biblically, theologically, in every way, this place was very, very conservative to the extent that as I grew up, some of that was really, really good, uh, but, but it, it produced a couple of things that probably didn't help me very much. As I progressed through my life, one was this really kooky version of the Bible, all right, that didn't just say it's the Word of God, but there was a lot of mystical, even animistic, almost pagan kind of things around it. I would hear stories about a soldier who would get shot in the chest, but he didn't die because he had a New Testament in his chest pocket, you know, and you can't penetrate the Word of God. It's just kind of kooky sort of stuff, and I thought, well, that's, that's sort of weird. The other thing was this really simplistic view of faith, that I was just supposed to believe it and not ask any questions about it. My view of faith growing up was very similar to that proverbial little girl in the Sunday school where her Sunday school teacher leans down and says to her, Sweetheart, what is faith? And her answer was, Faith is believing in something even if you know it's not true. Right? And that, that's kind of the faith it gave me. This Basically, the, the steps to being a good follower of Jesus in the culture in which I grew up, they were very simple. They just said, boy, here's what you got to do. You need to believe in Jesus. Don't ever smoke a cigarette. Don't ever drink a beer. Don't ever vote for a Democrat. You'll be fine. Right? That's the, that's the culture I grew up in. Now, there's some good things about that. They did teach me, this is God's Word. And you need to believe every word it says, and you need to obey its every command. That's never left me. But I did take a brief hiatus from it. To a large extent, because as I was entering my late teen years and into my young adult life, I wasn't getting satisfactory answers. And a couple of things raised those doubts in my mind. One was, a lot of these people that told me to believe the Bible, as I got older, I started looking at the way they were living their life, not just in church on Sunday. Some of you older folks need to pay attention to what I'm saying right now. But on Monday morning, they just seemed to be a different person. And I thought to myself, that's a contradiction in terms. That's... um. I think it's what the Bible calls a hypocrite. Someone who claims to believe one way, but then they live their life in diametric opposition to that Monday through Saturday. And I had deacons in the church that I grew up in that were living that way. And I thought, well, that's not right. That can't be. And so that raised a lot of doubts in my mind. Furthermore, I would come across passages of Scripture that seemed to say the direct opposite of what other passages of Scripture would say. And I would take that to my leaders in my church, and I would go, well, it says this here, but it says this over here. What do I make of that? And, and the response I would get would be very defensive. It, it wasn't helpful. It was pretty much, well, you just, you just, you just got to believe. Well, I'm trying to believe. I want to believe. And so those two things predominantly, there were some other, um, other experiences as well, but those two things predominantly led me to live a, a good portion, a few, two, three years of my late teen and young adult life, trying to take my faith seriously without taking the Bible seriously. That's where I was. 
Okay? So if you're there, you got company. I've been there. All right? I've been on that same journey with you. There are probably people sitting not too far from you who have been through that exact same thing. So you don't need to be embarrassed by having questions again. God's not afraid of your questions, neither are we. But, but those kind of things raise doubts in my mind. And so you need to know, first of all, I've been on that journey. You need to know, secondly, lots of other people have too. In fact, when we talk about the reliability of Scripture, we're talking about a conversation that has about 500 years of cultural baggage attached to it. And so the guys are going to put the slides up here, and I want you to see this, because uh, it all began with this question of how do we access truth? Now, in the pre-modern period, which we would say any time prior to about 1500, the overwhelming consensus in the Western world was that truth was believed to be discovered solely through divine revelation. In other words, there's only one place you get truth, and that's from God. Okay? We don't know, in fact, anything without God revealing that truth to us. Now, that's principally a true statement. But then you start having some questions about, okay, how do we arrive at that? How do we know that we're hearing from God? How do we know that we didn't get the wrong number, right? And so, uh, truthfully, what, what began to happen was eventually this consensus formed that the way you get that is through church authority. And so that came through your local priest or what we here at Covenant would call a pastor. But then these other questions began to be raised, like, what, yeah, but what if my pastor got it wrong? Right? What if he screws up? Then what happens? What, what about, even worse, what if, he's not try, what if he's not even trying to get it right? What if he's just trying to control me? What if he has an agenda? Very legitimate questions that led to this next period, the modern period, that started around 1500. It coincided with the European Enlightenment mentality, came up to around the year 2000. So very recently uh, has this period come to an end, and it said, Truth is believed to be discovered not by divine revelation, not by looking toward heaven and waiting on him to pour something out, but through human reason. I've already got, whether I believe in God or not, I already have everything I need in my noggin up here. And through observing the natural world, I can deduce what truth is. And so everything now is about human reason. Now, this period, too, gave us a lot of great things, didn't it? We put a man on the moon. We cured all kinds of diseases. We've done, I mean, the, the advent of the scientific method just in and of itself is a testimony to the triumph of modernity. But modernity didn't solve all of our problems either, did it? In fact, it created a few new ones. Industrialized pollution, the ability to destroy our planet multiple times over through nuclear technology. And so not only did the modern period disappoint us in the sense that it didn't really give us all the answers that we'd hoped for, but it didn't, not only did it not solve all of the problems that we wanted solved, it actually created some new ones. So those of you who now belong to what's called the millennial generation, your birth date is sometime after January of 1980, you're struggling with a lot of issues today that prior generations never had to struggle with, principally because of modernity. Which means that now we're in this new phase. Now, th there's different names for this. Some people call it post-modernity. I would say post-modernity is this very brief kind of hinge on which history swung, and we're not even there anymore. Uh, but the postmodern period, which is generally what most people call it, from 2000 up to the present, they say, as an answer to the question, how do we get truth? Do we get it through divine revelation, or do we get it through human reason? Overwhelmingly, our culture's answer to that question is no. Biblical Christianity, at least in its correct form, answers that question, yes. Not one or the other, but both. God doesn't mean for you to disengage your critical thinking skills even when you come to His Word. 
Okay? And that's something I had to come to in my own life. Thank God I had some godly men in my life who were finally able to speak into that. Uh, you actually owe a lot. Any kind of blessing or benefit that you get out of my teaching and preaching, you owe a great deal to many men, one of whom is a guy by the name of Walter Johnson. Uh, one of the first guys I ever ran into with a Ph.D. who was able to help me understand that it is possible to be a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving follower of Christ and still be a rational-thinking person. I don't know that I would ever come to that conclusion had it not been for Walter, Dr. Johnson. Excuse me. He calls me now and he asks me for advice, and I think, this is really weird. Yeah. Um, but to that guy, I'm telling you, I love him, and you should love him too. And you should seek to be like that guy. By inviting those questions. And if you don't know the answer, let's go exploring together. God's not afraid of those things. And the truth is the truth, and it doesn't change even with our doubts. Okay? And so here's what we want to discover. You have this pendulum swing back and forth throughout history of how do you find truth? Do you get it through revelation? Do you get it through reason? Here's what you need to know. Scripture tells us that God reveals himself in a couple of different ways. The guy's are going to put this up as well. God reveals truth, first of all, through something called general revelation. This is revelation of divine truth that comes to all people at all places at all times. This comes to us externally and internally. So externally, it comes to us by looking at the created order. Right? Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 1 about God revealing Himself and His existence in all of the created order. And, and we discover that truth through the earth and the life and the physical sciences. So those of you who work in those domains of society, those are divinely ordained professions. Because God reveals Himself to us in those ways. And you, as a scientist, discover God's truth through those kinds of things. The earth, the life, the physical sciences. And so what that means is there are things that I need to go to general revelation in order to learn. That doesn't make the Bible less of the Word of God, right? I I can't read the Bible and learn how to perform heart surgery. You know that, right? You you actually have to go to medical school to learn how to do that sort of thing. I don't know about you, but if I ever get reached the point in my life where I need cardiac surgery and they're about to cut my chest open and I'm laying there and just before the anesthesiologist puts that thing over my face, the doc that's going to actually cut on me leans over and he goes, Brother, i got D's in medical school, but I love Jesus. Yeah, you need to leave, right? I want the guy from Hopkins who got straight A's, 4.0. He's gotten 16 hours of sleep the night before. That's who I want, right? You need general revelation for some things. The Bible wasn't created. It doesn't exist to fulfill every single purpose. God gives us general revelation, and both believers, Christians, and non-believers, non-Christians, can access this truth externally, also internally. Internally. The human consciousness. And we can get to that through disciplines like anthropology, sociology, psychology, education, science. Through, through these sorts of things, we learn a lot. Because God has revealed Himself to all people in all places in all times through general revelation. And He's given us, academically and otherwise, the tools by which we can access that truth. But God doesn't just speak generally. He also speaks specially. Special revelation are various expressions and manifestations throughout biblical history. For Moses, it was a burning bush. See, that doesn't happen every day, does it? For, for the people in Acts, it was a message in tongues. It was various kinds of expressions, various kinds of ways that, that God revealed Himself. And in Hebrews, we're told that the final form of that special revelation is the person of Jesus. 
<clears throat> Hebrews 1-2 puts it this way. Long ago, and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. So the ultimate form of God revealing Himself in all of His glory to you and to me comes through Jesus. And then Jesus is revealed in the Scriptures. This is John 5.39. This is a key verse to understanding any other verse in the Bible. You search the Scriptures, Jesus said to the Pharisees, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Got that? Whatever you're reading, if it's in Nahum, if it's in Habakkuk, if it's in Zephaniah, if it's in 2 Corinthians, if it's in Revelation, and you get off track, here's what you need to remember. It's about Jesus. Every bit of it is about Him. It is they that bear witness about me. So here is the Christian faith in a nutshell. God has revealed Himself fully and finally in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as God, very God, as perfect man, is revealed to us perfectly and divinely in the Scriptures. That's what we believe. So you can see there's a lot at stake in this question of whether or not this story that we're going to be studying for the next six months together is reliable. There's a lot at stake. Why? would we believe this book? Because there's some crazy stuff in here. You all read this stuff? This is crazy. Why would we believe this? I sat next to an academic colleague some years ago, teaches at a, a, a more liberal seminary up in the Northeast, and it's far to the left of me, but we're good friends. And he said, you actually believe, and he started delineating some of these things that were that, that supposedly transpired in the Bible. You you think that actually took place? And I said, yeah, I do. And in a moment where he just kind of forgotten to check himself, he said, I don't understand how in the world somebody like you could believe that. You have a Ph.D., man. And then he backed up and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. And I said, it really is okay. But that is the question, isn't it? Why this book? Let me give you three reasons. Okay, External evidence, prophetic evidence, internal evidence. Okay? So that you will know, or at least have some sense, that as we move through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation in the next six months, that you're not just wasting your time. This isn't the equivalent of reading Aesop's fables. This is a story that is true, that is grounded in truth. How do we know that? Well, we have some great evidence that's given to us. First of all, externally, in terms of manuscripts. Now, Critical scholars use manuscript evidence to, to judge the validity and the historicity and the truthfulness of historical documents all the time. And here's what you need to know. The work of Homer is not questioned at all. Okay? You look at it. Scholars have looked at it. They've, they've collated all the various copies, and there's 643 of them. The earliest of which is dated somewhere around 1,300 years after his death. But nobody questions it. Plato. 1,300 years after his death, you find the earliest copies of his work. Prior to that, you have no clue that this guy even existed. There are only seven copies of it, but nobody questions Plato. Aristotle, five copies, dated 1,400 years plus after his death. Caesar, there's ten copies, dated 950 years after his death. The work of Tacitus gives us 20 copies, dated to 1,000 years after his death. Now, why in the world, given the way that people believe this... 
would they not believe the New Testament when it has 14,000 copies? Many dated as early as 30 years after the recorded events. There's very few differences or contradictory reports between these copies, and not a single doctrine of the Christian faith is in question because of these differences. Right? Because with 14,000 copies, we have to be intellectually honest. Okay? Are, are there differences? Are there places where one manuscript says one thing and one manuscript says the other? And the answer is, yeah, there are. But with 14,000 of them, there are dudes and gals on this planet who are smart enough to figure out what the original said. And they can arrive at that conclusion. Now, why are there differences? Because there were no Xerox machines. You could just run down to Kinko's or the UPS store in the ancient world. The only way to get these this many copies was to sit a bunch of scribes down and employ them to write it out. And I would submit to you that if you put 60 guys or girls in the same room together and they try to handwrite 14,000 copies of anything, somebody's going to miss a comma or two. It's going to happen. But even among those differences, there's not a single cardinal doctrine of the faith that's in question because of these differences. So it's, it's intellectually inconsistent and academically irresponsible to question the New Testament, but to not question Plato, to not question Aristotle, to not question Tacitus, to not question Homer. And I will tell you, I don't question Plato. I don't question Aristotle. I don't question the validity of those documents. Neither do I question the validity of the New Testament. The external evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Secondly, archaeological evidence. Middle Eastern archaeological investigations have given strong evidence that the Bible is unerringly accurate in its historical descriptions. Nelson Gluek, a Jewish archaeologist, says no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Dr. William Albright, who's one of the premier archaeologists of the Middle East, says there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed the substantial historicity of the Old Testament. Does that mean we've always that we've discovered everything? No. It just means there's been no discovery that has ever controverted anything that Scripture said actually happened in history. So there's archaeological evidence. But then, the most eerie thing to me is the prophetic evidence. The prophetic evidence. Now, if you have a copy of God's Word, go to Ezekiel chapter 26. Ezekiel. It's toward the end of the Old Testament, if you're not quite sure where to find it. Uh, You go to the table of contents or just look it up on your Bible app. Ezekiel chapter 26. And I want to read... um, this will be the only passage of Scripture we'll read in total this morning, but I want you to get a sense. This is a prophecy written in 587 B.C. <clears throat> and it's written against a city called Tyre. Hear these words. In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It is swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre. You will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. And she shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets. Fishing nets is what he's talking about here. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God, And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword, and they will know that I am the Lord. 
Now, he goes on to talk about not just the mainland of Tyre, but also there was a little causeway and then an island that was also considered part of Tyre. And he said, it will be destroyed too. So, so here's the, the culmination of the prophecy, that all of Tyre is going to be laid waste, that this great and powerful city that would have equaled a Manhattan-type world-class city in its day, in the very near future, will only be the place for the spreading of fishing nets. That's the only thing that's going to happen there. That prophecy was uttered in 587 B.C. Twelve years later, in 573 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Tyre, and he completely destroyed it, and he took the rubble that was left over, and he threw it into the ocean. Now, here's the catch. The island part of the city remained. And so it looked like maybe this prophecy is just going to be partially fulfilled, or, or something else is going to happen, or... It, maybe Scripture is just not true. Maybe, maybe Ezekiel got some of this wrong. And for 200 years, God's people waited. And in 333 B.C., Alexander the Great took the rubble that Nebuchadnezzar had thrown into the sea, and his soldiers used it to build a causeway to that island. And they marched to that island, and they destroyed it. And today, 2017, if you go to that piece of real estate, do you know what you will find? A fishing village. Now, I could give you story after story after story after story, but you've got to eat lunch. Right? So, so I'm just going to give you this one. This one. Numerous times that the Scriptures have said, and with dead accuracy, those things were fulfilled. And that's true most significantly of the person of Jesus. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about Christ. They talk about the way He would come into the world, the place of His death, the way He would die, His rejection by the nation of Israel. All these prophecies were made hundreds of years before Jesus came into the world. Now, there was some debate about the date of those prophecies. Right? If you're going to doubt the Scriptures, then you would say, okay, well, those things, you know, it'd be really easy for somebody to go in 20, 30 years after Jesus and write something and then claim to be Isaiah. Right? We actually have scholars that to this day say there were actually two or maybe even three Isaiahs who prophesied together and somehow through literary evolution, the book that we have as Isaiah somehow came together. Uh, that all really held sway in the scholarly world until 1947 when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and substantiated that these prophecies were written well before the time of Jesus. So this is the prophetic evidence that this comes this is the word of the Lord through external evidence, through prophetic evidence, but finally through internal evidence. See, one of the things you have to ask about the Bible is you have to ask, what does it say about itself? What does it say about itself? Look at 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's quite a statement. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In other words, not for everything, not for heart surgery, not for rebuilding carburetors, right? not for improving your golf swing, but for anything that he lists up here, this is why the Scriptures were written. This is why they were created for all of these things, so that there's an end goal in mind that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. In every way that you need to grow in your relationship with Jesus, you have the resources to do it, and you can find it within the pages of this book. That's what this book claims about itself. And the reason it makes that claim is because it makes another claim. Scripture is breathed out by God. 
Every word of this. Now, Second Peter clears some of this up for us. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. Okay? So when we talk about the Bible being breathed out by God, we're not talking about this very static, sort of non-dynamic process where God just opens heaven and speaks and robots write it down. God spoke through personalities, through various writing styles, through various situations in life. But as those authors were writing, what the Scripture claims of itself was that God superintended even those personalities and those writing styles and those literary genres and those historical backgrounds to the extent that there's not a single syllable in this book that God didn't intend to be there. Conversely, this book is not missing a single syllable that God otherwise intended to be there. That's what this book says about itself. That's crazy. Okay? Some of you are in the mental health profession. If I come into you and I go, every word I speak to you is the Word of God, you're going to go, hey, we have a room for you. Right? This is nuts. But this is what it says about itself. This is what the Bible says about itself. And, it's, and, and that's what it reveals. These writers, and there were about 40 of them, writing over a period of about 1,500 years on three different continents, that God used them all to put this one story that we're going to spend the next six months investigating together, to put it together. And he gave it to us over 39 times in the 22 books of the New Testament. The Bible refers to itself as the Word of the Lord. You think that's a lot? When the Old Testament, that happens 242 times. That's some amount of audacity, don't you think? This is the word of the Lord. More liturgical traditions, you'll even hear us at Covenant sometimes, when our elders will read the Scripture and they get done, and we'll look at you and they will say, this is the word of the Lord. Guys, that's not just liturgy. That's something we believe, and it's profound, and it is nuts. Like crazy, nuts. But it's what we believe. Here's the bottom line. What the Bible says about itself demands that you and I have one of two responses to it. We either believe it as what it is. We believe it's what it says it is. We obey its every command. Or we burn it. There's really not a third option here. Okay? You can't call it, well, it's the good book. No, it's no, it's really not. It calls itself the Word of the Lord. If that's not true, it's not a good book. It's not. Okay? And this is where those of us who are followers of Jesus, who do believe the book, we need to ease up a little bit when we hear the critics say what they say. Let me give you one example of a critic. Most of you love this guy. You know who this is? Anybody ever watch Bill Maher? Come on out yourselves. I will. I'll watch Bill Maher. I hate religion. I think it's a neurological disorder. And of the Bible, he says it's an utterly ridiculous book. Bill Maher is right about two things. Number one, if this book isn't true, then that means the faith you and I profess to believe isn't just untrue. It's dangerous. He's right about that. He's absolutely right about that. Number two. Here's the second thing he's right about. The things that Scripture claims are ridiculous. 
Can we just, we'll, we'll be intellectually out of stuff to admit that, won't we? Are you nervous because I said that? You, there are things in the Bible that are ridiculous. You don't believe that? Think about that. Our faith is a story, and our story is one of global floods and floating accents and talking donkeys and burning bushes and people speaking in languages they've never heard before and a guy rising from the dead. That's nuts. And he's right when he says that. You know who agrees with him? Paul, who says that the gospel contained in the whole of the Bible, the story we're going to study for the next six months, is the power of God. But it is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. He says, we preach Christ. This is 1 Corinthians 1. Crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yeah, this story is on the surface, if you're only using reason and reason only, ridiculous nonsense. But it can save your soul. That's what Paul said about it. And all of the external evidence that your, your fallen mind can process is there to demonstrate for you that there's more than just a little overwhelming evidence that this book might actually be exactly what it claims to be. Now, now why would we, why do we make such hay of that here at Covenant? Right? Why, why does that, our, the first line, first line in our confession of faith says, we believe that the Old and New Testaments constitute the word of the living God and they are without error. I will never hire anybody who doesn't believe every word of that. Why is that? Why is that? Is it because we've got some agenda? Is it because we've got to carve ourselves off an identity? It's not about that at all. I thought it was until the eve of my ordination service. I'm at my home church. And Walter Johnson, the same gentleman that I referenced earlier, is going. he, he chaired my ordination council which was a little intimidating. And then he's going to preach this service. And we're at the back of the service, at the back of the church, getting ready to go out. And I said to him, I said, Doc, I just I want to thank you for everything you've taught me, the way you've invested in my life. Uh, and in particular, thank you for kind of pulling me back from the brink. I was going in a kind of a dangerous direction intellectually. And you didn't just warn me and yank me. You, you guided me gently. You helped me see the truth of the Scripture. And, and, and all of those things that you taught me in those classes and the time we spent together on campus, it, is just, it's, it scored its point with me. I just want you to know that. And always the consummate professor, he looked back at me with a big grin, and he said, I'm glad to hear that, son. What was that point exactly? And I said, well... You taught me about the roots and the dangers and, and, and the trap doors, intellectually and otherwise, of, of things like theological liberalism and neo-orthodoxy, existentialism, all these movements that tried to pick the Scriptures apart. I know how to pick those movements apart now and defend the Bible. And he looked back at me and he said, well, that's, uh, that's all well and good, son, but that really wasn't the point. I said, okay, what was the point? I'm getting ready to go pastor my first church. If I miss the big idea, my people are going to pay for that, right? So what, what's the big point? And he said, well, Joel, first of all, 
Scripture was here a long time before you were ever born. It'll be here long after you're gone. It doesn't need your defense. But he said, secondly, I didn't, I didn't teach you any of that stuff so you could defend anything, so that you could refute anything. I didn't do it for any of those reasons. He said, Joel, I did that because you aspire to be a pastor. And I want you and every other young man that I raise up to be a pastor to have absolute confidence that when they stand up in front of their people and they open that book in some of the worst, most unspeakable times of people's lives, when they open that book in front of their people in a time when they themselves will not know what to say, they can still be confident of this one thing, God has spoken. I want you, every time you stand up in that pulpit, to know God has spoken. I want every congregation you ever stand in front of to know God has spoken. And He has. That's what we believe. That's why we think it's worth moving from Genesis to Revelation and giving you a handle on this story and helping you to understand how to interpret it. That's why it's worth you up every morning, down every night, whenever it's best for you to immerse yourself in this book that is called the Bible. Because we really do believe it's the Word of God. And here's the great news. You have a privilege that Moses himself didn't have. Do you know that? You have a privilege that Jeremiah never got to have, that Habakkuk never got to have, that even the apostles themselves never got to have. See, when they wanted to hear God speak, they had to wait on something. A burning bush, a message in tongues, something. You ain't got to wait on nothing. And neither do I. If you have that book in your lap, you can look at it and hear the voice of God every single time. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. This story is true, this story is real, and this story that we're going to take the next six months to unpack for you can change everything. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that you have spoken, that your word is true. Thank you that, thank you for doing that. Father, I'm, there's just such an excitement in my own spirit as I think about unpacking this for your people over the coming months. And I pray that your people are blessed by it. I pray that they're transformed. I pray that their confidence in truth grows as a result of it. And may you be glorified. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.